the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. We hope that God speaks to you today as we continue our study, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the Bible, with Senior Pastor Will Ramirez. Today, as we continue with our study in the book of Acts, Saul continues to persecute the church. But he doesn't know that God is waiting for him on the road to Damascus. We'll pick it up in Acts chapter 9, verse 1. The title of the message is Chief of the Forgiven. Well, Acts chapter 9, we are now entering into this section here where we're going to see the conversion of Saul. The aftermath of Stephen's martyrdom has changed the makeup of the church, whereas it had been concentrated in Jerusalem, and particularly just to the Jews who were there in Jerusalem, the persecution that drove Christians and the gospel they preached everywhere has now spread. And so the church is in Judea, it's in Samaria, and even to the uttermost of Nambia through the eunuch that Philip met. But while all these wonderful things were going on in the places the Christians fled to, Saul continued to persecute and murder Christians. Acts 8, 3 says, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering into every house and hailing men and women, committed them to prison. So while this is all going on, Saul is still continuing to persecute and murder Christians. And his success in doing so did not sate his appetite. Like a feeding frenzy, that word havoc, it's like a wild animal running around just tearing everything to pieces. But like a feeding frenzy, it made him want more. He could never slake that appetite to silence the Christians. As we see the chief of sinners stretch forth his hand to reach those Christians who had fled to Damascus, we will also see Jesus reaching down to make him the chief of the forgiven. So Acts chapter 9, verse 1. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, he went unto the high priest, and he desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. So Saul's frenzy now takes him to Damascus. It says, and yet Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. The word there means murder. Breathing out threatenings and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest. Paul's hatred for Christians became the very air that he breathed, the thing that he inhaled, the thing that kept him waking up each day, the thing that drove him on. Now, you have to understand, for a Pharisee of the Pharisees, to go to the high priest meant he was going to the chief Sadducee. For a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as Paul describes himself in 2 Corinthians, to go to the chief Sadducee with a request shows his vehement passion to hunt down Christians, how much he hated them. 
And so he desired of him. He, the word there means to ask with urgency, to plead, to beg. He begged to be the guy to handle this. He desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether there are men and women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. Julius Caesar, and then later Augustus Caesar, had granted the high priest and the Sanhedrin jurisdiction over Jews in foreign cities. When they liberated the area of Judea from the Greeks, from the Ptolemy dynasty, they gave that jurisdiction to them. They said, if there are Jews who have fled anywhere who are lawbreakers, we give the high priest and the Sanhedrin the authority to extradite them and to bring them back into Judea for judgment. And so Paul is asking for these letters, this permission to go and to extradite these Christians, these lawbreakers, where it mentions that if he found any of this way, whether they are men or women, he might bring them bound into Jerusalem. Now, why Damascus? Well, Paul has already driven all Christians in Judea underground, probably. So he is now branching out. In Acts 26, 11, he makes it clear that Damascus was just one of the many foreign cities he'd gone to in order to arrest and kill Christians. This is not the first place he's asked letters for. He's already gone to other cities, foreign cities, to go and do this. Damascus would simply be the last city he went to do this. And the reason he went here next is because it had a huge population of Jews. History records that Nero, just prior to his death, he butchered over 10,000 Jews in Syria. So this was a place where there were a lot of Jews living, a place, therefore, that Christians, who at this time were primarily Jews, would feel comfortable going to. There'd be a culture they could go to that would be accepting of them. Notice here it says that if he found any of this way, literally it means the way, which was the earliest name for Christianity. It was called the way. And that makes sense because when someone got saved, it changed the direction of their life when they came to faith in Christ. The way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Fascinating that the early Christians were called the way. And now today, We have people from the pulpit who will say that Jesus never said he was the only way to heaven. That was the very name that we were given at our start. In fact, the name Christian was not a good name. It was a derogatory name. The way was the first name that was ascribed to us. Notice it mentions here that when Paul would do this, that whether they were men or women didn't matter. He might bring them bound into Jerusalem. I am minded of the headlines today that we read of women who are being raped and forced into marriage with these members of ISIS. I saw a video of a crying little girl, seven-year-old girl, where this very proud member of ISIS was announcing his marriage to the seven-year-old girl. Paul, not so much different. Hailing men and women, murdering them, bringing them bound to Jerusalem. Acts mentions three times specifically that Saul showed cruelty to women as well as men. Is it any wonder that we find people today who have deep hatred for the Lord, deep hatred for the gospel that do the same? Paul is often described as a woman hater in his teachings when it concerns their role in the family and in church. Oh, Paul, he was a woman hater. He he didn't like women. That's why he said the things that he said. And yet the Bible describes him as a man who saw his own cruelty toward women as a heinous thing. Hardly a reaction we would find from someone who actually looks down on women now. Paul looked at the treatment that he had as women of one of the reasons that he called himself the chief of sinners. I don't think Paul was a woman hater at all. 
It would be him that would utter the words that in Christ there is neither male nor female, right? Paul was sharing what the Lord had shared with him about the proper role of women within the church and within the family. And we do well to mind that and not excuse it and say that Paul was a woman hater and therefore we don't have to listen to what he had to say. Well, Saul is on his way to Damascus, but Jesus interrupts Saul's plans. Verse three, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul, as he is about to reach Damascus there, it was described as an emerald in the midst of the desert. He would see the city there, the white domes of the buildings that were there in this area, the valley down there in Damascus. As he would journey, he came near, and then suddenly, as he could see the city, it says that a light shined. Suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. The word there means a flash. It's akin to the concept of lightning. There was all of a sudden this kind of a, a lightning flash. And there shined around him a light from heaven. In Acts 26, Paul explains that the light was brighter than the noonday sun. It's got to be pretty bright, right? You ever tried to do that, you know, as kids? How long can you look at the sun? And then, of course, you're looking until you see spots, and then for 10 minutes, you can't see anything. Saul says the light was brighter than that. And it says, he fell to the earth, and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, according to Acts 26, the voice spoke in Hebrew. Saul, therefore, alone would probably understand the words because the common language of the day was Aramaic. So he's going to arrest people. So it's not exactly that Paul could be a one-man band and do that. He probably had taken temple guards and temple soldiers with him. But these would not necessarily be educated men, so they would have spoken Aramaic. They would not have spoken Hebrew, which in that day, most Jews didn't speak it, only the scholars did. So the reason I bring this up is because there are those who criticize and say, well, here it says that he heard the voice, and it mentions here that they heard a voice, the people with them, but then in Acts 22 or 26, it mentions that they didn't hear a voice. No, it means they didn't understand the voice is what it actually says. There's no contradiction there. They heard the voice, but they didn't understand the words because Jesus spoke them in Hebrew. This was a confrontation between Jesus and Paul alone. And the Lord asks him, he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Wow, that's heavy. Saul, so all the things that you're doing, why are you doing them to me? See, John 16, 2 is Paul's mindset. In John 16, 2, Jesus told his disciples, they shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time comes that whosoever kills you will think that he does God a service. We are labeled as bigots today. We are labeled as intolerant. We are labeled as a scourge. You ask me, what's the greatest evil? You find that like two out of five people will say religion. And a lot of times they're talking about you and me. They'll think that they're doing God a favor. That was Saul's mindset. He thought he was on the Lord's side. He fashioned himself after Phineas who came and when the Midianites women were coming in and lying with the men that he came and drove a spear right through them as they were copulating. He fashioned himself in that same mindset. This would have come as quite the shocker to a man who believed himself justified in arresting and killing blasphemers. And here at this point, this is the crux for Saul. He could have continued to spew out venom, cursing the voice that spoke. But instead he trembled for crazy as it sounds, the murderous hatred was acted upon in ignorance. Do you remember Jesus there as they were pounding the spikes into his wrists and to his feet? 
And he said those words, Father, forgive them. What? They know not what they do. And Stephen had echoed that prayer as he died, right? Father, do not lay this sin to their charge. Saul had heard those words. Those words had angered him. They had frustrated him. The angelic countenance of Stephen had frustrated him. All the argument that Stephen had made had frustrated him to the point where he had to drown the very thing out. I have to wipe them all out. No, they're blasphemers. Everything they've said is not true. Paul the Apostle, as a member of the Sanhedrin, most likely had been there voting for Jesus' execution. He may have been one of the people who had scoffed and said he saved others, but he cannot save himself. He may have been one of those who had gone to see John the Baptist when John had said, bring forth works worthy of repentance. And for whatever reason in Stephen, he saw something he had no answer for. None of his theology, none of the rabbis, nothing could answer the face and the words and the countenance of that man who he had voted for his death. Now, as the Lord says, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul with trembling, he says, who are you, Lord? In other words, Paul knew he was talking to the Lord right now. That's the word kurios. Who are you, Lord? Paul, Paul was a Pharisee. He didn't just call anybody Lord. That was the name of God that in the New Testament we find described. It's the equivalent of the Old Testament name of Adonai, master. The one who is in charge. And yet I imagine he has a trembling suspicion that his definition of God is about to be transformed. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said to him, I am Jesus, the one you persecute. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. You know, it's fascinating. Who are you, Lord? And Jesus here, he says, well, it's me, Jesus. Jesus here. Jesus never claimed to be God. Dig a little deeper. One of my favorite things to hear unbelievers say when you're sharing the gospel with them, well-meaning, I've read the Bible. Most of the Christians I know haven't read the Bible, but you, you, a rebellious pagan, have read the thing book to book, cover to cover. I've read the Bible. Very often we will see experts get up there in college situations and they will pontificate and explain, Jesus never claimed to be God. Dig a little deeper. I am Jesus. Who, who are you, Lord? Jesus is the Lord, God himself. I am Jesus, whom you persecute. And then he says, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, if you don't have that in your translation, it most likely is not in the original text. Paul, however, in Acts 26, he says that that conversation took place. So what most likely happened is some scholar added this in here for clarity, and it came down to us. But it did indeed happen, so there's nothing wrong with it being here. So let's go ahead and address that. He says, it's been hard for you to kick against the pricks or the goads. The word there, that word for hard, it means a stubbornness, an inflexibility. It's used of the hardness of a person's heart. The goad, of course, was a wooden stick with metal points on the end. And when you're trying to get a large animal, a pack animal usually, to go into a confined space or to get moving, you would place that right by the back of their feet and then you would begin to prod them and they would kick back on it. And of course, the harder they kicked, the deeper those little metal spikes would go in, the more pain it would cause. And what would happen? The stubborn animal would learn, maybe I shouldn't kick and I should just move. And Saul, being compared here by the Lord to a, a stubborn animal who's not learning his lesson. 
This was a Greek idiom for futile and harmful resistance. And to continue resistance implied a foolish stubbornness. And this is how Saul had been operating. He'd seen something so different in Stephen, something that put his pursuit of self-righteousness to shame. And he tried to stamp it out everywhere. And now he's confronted face-to-face, not with Stephen this time, but with Stephen's Savior, and he has a choice to make. How long have you been resisting? You've got arguments, you've got things you don't understand, and you're fighting, and you're fighting, and you're fighting, and yet Jesus is beginning to confront you himself. Don't be stubborn in the face of what you know to be true any longer. Like Saul, yield. For in verse 6, we see Saul here, and he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will you have me to do? And here is Saul's conversion. This is his conversion experience. See, he knew the person he was talking to was the Lord, and now the Lord reveals that it is Jesus, and now for him to say, Jesus, Lord, What would you have me to do? You don't say that unless you believe the man who's talking to you. Right here is Saul's conversion. He doesn't have a prayer. He doesn't have some type of an experience where he goes through the four steps of the gospel. None of that happens here. What it is is simple repentance. Before, I didn't like you. And now, you're my Lord. It's that simple. Repentance and faith right there. I thought the way I was going was fine. Now it's not. Now what do you want me to do? Before you weren't Lord, before you were some guy I was trying to stamp out. Now you're Lord, faith, repentance, salvation in a nutshell. Trembling and astonished, Lord, what would you have me to do? Again, some translations omit this here, but he corroborates his response in Acts 22.10 where he says this, Lord, what will you have me to do? And Saul would not to continue to call him Lord if he did not make a choice to believe. What would you have me to do? <laughs> What better response is there from a new believer than that? Lord, what do you want me to do? Obedience. Saul's conversion is fascinating. The Lord says unto him, arise and go into the city and it shall be told you what you must do. But Saul's conversion leaves us with a few thoughts concerning salvation. First off, at its core, salvation is something God does in us. We respond to his work in us. He is the instigator and initiator, right? The Bible says that while we were in our sin, Christ died for us, right? He initiated. He was the first actor, and it is our job to respond to what he has done. But secondly, Jesus, I love this, he finds us even when we are not looking for him. Praise God, right? How many of us were looking for him? How many Christians do you know? I was just looking for Jesus, and I wandered into a church and found him. No, the Bible says there are none that seeks after God. There's none that searches for God. And then he comes down and he finds us. I had a professor at college who said, Jesus stormed the citadel of my heart and he took me captive. I love that. Because that's what he did. I wasn't looking for him. I was doing my own thing, going my own way. The Bible says all we'd like sheep have gone astray. We've all gone our own way. I was fine, living life, whatever. And then life pulled the carpet out from underneath me. And Jesus came and he found me. In John chapter 9, you remember the story of the man who was born blind and he was healed. And then when he was brought for testimony, they excommunicated him. One of my favorite parts of all of Scripture is Jesus found him. He went and he searched for him and he found him. Cast off by the world, cast off by those who should have been defending him, should have been upholding him, should have been helping him. Cast off and Jesus goes and he finds him. 
Jesus leaves the 99 to go find that one. And at some point in our life, you and I, each one of us, if you're saved today, you were that one, right? He went and he found you and he brought you back. Praise God. But thirdly, in the end, our salvation, true salvation, is a confrontation with the person of Jesus over our sin and rebellion against him, even the sins which are done ignorantly. It is not a confrontation with church. It's not a confrontation with other believers. It is a confrontation with Jesus himself. We are not brought unto an organization. We are brought unto God Almighty. Have you responded to that confrontation? Maybe today the Lord is reaching out to you, touching you, and he's dealing with that issue of sin and rebellion, of going your own way. And you may even be protesting, saying, but I didn't know. I wasn't trying to be bad. And the Lord says, but we have to deal with it. We have to deal with it. There could be no relationship with Jesus until there is the question of why. Why are you doing this? We need to make this right. You know, if I get into an argument with my wife or if I mistreat my wife, things are not just going to be okay on their own. I need to go to her. I need to apologize. I need to say I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? And our relationship with God is no different. We cannot just ignore, oh, I believe God's good and he'll forgive. Agreed. But you think you can have a relationship with anybody where you just ignore how you've mistreated them, ignore what you've done to them and just go on with the relationship and think it'll be meaningful at all? None of us can do that. Those issues have to be addressed. They have to be talked about. It's one of the hardest things in a marriage. Most of the time we don't address it. We don't talk about it. We just pretend, well, they'll understand or they'll forgive or whatever. We would never do that in our work environment and expect that everybody be okay with it. And yet the one that you wake up to in the morning, you lean over to, we think it'll just go away. Jesus said, arise and go into the city and it shall be told you what you must do. And so the men which journeyed with him, they stood speechless, <clears throat> hearing a voice, but seeing no man. Acts twenty six fourteen states that Paul's entourage fell to the ground also, but then they got back up. And when they got back up, they heard the voice speaking, but they didn't understand the words that were spoken in Hebrew. And that left them speechless. I mean, wouldn't you be if you were there? I mean, all of a sudden, this crack of lightning and this bright light, now you hear a voice, you don't see a person, but you hear the voice and you don't understand it. And now all of a sudden, the guy in charge who's ready to drag people off in chains back to Jerusalem, he's suddenly blind and very contrite. What do you say? Sometimes in situations where God is working in someone's heart, you don't need to say anything. Sometimes when someone's going through difficulty, you just grab their hand and you cry with them. As Christians, we feel like we have to have something to say all the time, right? I've got, I've got to say something. How can I help them? You know, some of the best times of ministry is when I've just laid my head in my wife's lap and she's let me cry and just held my hand, knowing that she loves me and know that she's with me. You see, that's not very manly. Tough. The Bible says Jesus sweat great drops of blood and his agony is emotional agony over us. And so it says, and Saul arose from the earth. I'm so glad he didn't stay there. I'm so glad he got up in obedience. And when his eyes were opened, he saw no man. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And there 
He was three days without sight, neither did he eat nor drink. Saul rose in obedience, but he also rose in faith because he couldn't see. And Jesus had given him no word that his sight would be restored yet. He had no promise that that would happen. And so he goes into the city, he's led into the hand. Wasn't that fascinating? He's probably in his mind going to come in with all sorts of aggression and pomp and circumstance and meet the leaders of Damascus and hand them those letters and be like, here I come, Christians. And now he's walked in by the hand. And it mentions that he did not eat or drink for three days. Now you say fasting, what is that? The concept of fasting is when you are fasting, what you're doing is you're telling your flesh, you're telling your body, no, you don't call the shots today. I need to hear from the Lord and I'm making it clear. I don't want any of your input right now. And one of the great things is every time your tummy rumbles and you think I'm hungry, that's a reminder to pray about whatever it is that you're seeking God about. Fasting was a common practice for the Pharisees, so Saul wouldn't be a stranger to that. However, this time the fast would be more than a self-righteous ritual. He was praying, seeking God for wisdom and insight, no doubt rethinking his entire life. Zeal for God is no substitute for a relationship with God. In fact, misplaced religious zeal can often lead us to do hurtful things against others. It can blind us to God's heart. Thankfully, God will do whatever it takes to get our attention and draw us back to His love. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will Ramirez, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. If you have any spiritual or physical needs, please contact us. We would love to pray for you and assist you in any way we can. You can reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn walk and live in the word three-star general michael j flynn head of the pentagon intelligence agency knew all the government's dirty secrets he was one of the most respected generals in the military flynn knew what the intel world had been up to he understood its funding he ordered the first audit of the use of contractors this set off alarm bells the explosive new documentary flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost and covers the facts behind this scandal flynn told the truth he was the most dangerous person for donald trump to hire i find out the worst enemy that i'm going to face in my life is right here in america they took my assessment and they wanted me to change it i was like i'm not changing it they had to get rid of flynn with in-depth interviews archival footage and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines i just felt like i was drowning flynn deliver the truth whatever the cost available now watch it today go to salemnow.com salemnow.com